Welcome to Educational Alpha. I'm Bill Kelly, CEO of Kaya and your host, bringing you on the ground conversations with business leaders, educators, and industry colleagues from around the globe. In this episode, Bill speaks with the CEO at Prequin, Christoph Kanak, about the private capital industry, including challenges and strengths of balancing asset holding with realizing value. They explore topics such as transparency, secondaries, and the denominator effect, as well as the need for education, regulation, and technology. Christoph also shares insights from Prequin, which focuses on alternative assets while discussing the evolving industry and its growth potential. Listen in. It's great to be at the top of the house at Prequin with my guest today, Christoph Kanak. Christoph, great to see you. Great to see you, Bill. Thank you very much for having me. You folks have been tremendous friends of the investor, and by that virtue, tremendous friends of Kaya. We try to bring education and transparency, and you do it through great research and data and thought leadership pieces. And I've been involved in many of these in the decade I've been at Kaya, so thank you for that partnership. But it's always good to begin with a little bit about your background. And you've been at Prequin not all that long, but if you factor in COVID, I think that's measured in dog years to some degree. So I think you've got quite an education and maybe a relatively short period of time. But you come at this through the private markets a little bit. So maybe a bit on your background and we can move to Prequin from there. Certainly. And um, I can only echo your words. I mean, we are very blessed to have the partnership with Kaya and we do all bit around education and data and you're obviously instrumental to educating the industry. And there's much more that needs to be done on the education side, that's for sure. Briefly on my background, so I joined Prequin at the start of the pandemic, initially as a strategy officer, and then I also took responsibility over for product and now I lead the firm. My background is I started initially in banking and then I worked for KKR in the private equity group for a number of years before I switched from the private to the public markets and actually worked as an investor on the public side. So I've spent most of my career in alternative assets and now I'm in the blessed position to lead this fantastic firm and to help put the word out there on alternative assets and, and educate the market with our means through data and insights. We are, I think, at a very interesting inflection point in the market, which makes your job and mine and Frequent's mission and Kaya's so very important, so very interesting, and maybe so very challenging to a large degree as well. And I say that from the vantage point that we've got diversification is alive and well, and we're coming out of a year in 2022 where for one of the very rare moments, we saw a great correlation between the public equity and public fixed income markets globally. If that was your asset allocation mix across two asset classes, most investors got scorched and it turned the democratization and diversification machinery into overdrive. And everybody needs to have alternatives in their portfolio. And while you've got private equity in your name, and I've got alternate investments in mine as well, I think both you and I try to encourage investors to think about a broad lens of diversification and think about alternatives with two L's. We're trying to look at broad diversification as opposed to creating this weird third bucket. So maybe if I formulate that into a question, there are a lot of opportunities around diversification and the private markets are very interesting too. But maybe start with a little bit of the outlook because you put a lot of thought leadership here. I think the outlook in terms of growth and opportunity is quite bright, but then we get into some of the, maybe the obstacles in the middle of all this, but maybe a bit on the outlook first. Certainly. 
You're absolutely right. I mean, the industry has evolved significantly over the last few years. And maybe the way to address it, I'll, I'll take a, a step back just to recap really the journey we have been on when it comes to alternatives. And that then speaks already to the diversification you mentioned, and then give a bit of an outlook on what, what we are seeing, what we are thinking, where the industry will go from here. I mean, I think it's very clear to everyone, right, that we are now operating in a really fundamentally different environment than only 18 months ago. Right? The macroeconomic climate has changed. We're seeing heightened geopolitical threats. And naturally, alternative assets are not immune here. Frequent is actually currently celebrating his 20th birthday. And during those two decades, we have seen significant changes in the alternative space. You do expect the industry to continue evolving. So, for instance, when Brickman started back in 2003, total industry AUM across all alternative asset classes was maybe around a trillion US dollars. And then fast forward just after the financial crisis in 2010, it was around 4 trillion US dollars. And today it has grown to 15 trillion US dollars. So we have seen the industry already grow substantially, increase in complexity, and that allows us to diversify more, so more asset classes receiving attention, and ultimately mature, and mature across the globe. But that all said, right, as we think about maturity and where we are today, and as mature as it is in certain asset classes, we strongly believe that we are now entering a new decade, really, of maturity. That is because non-institutional capital is increasingly entering the space, and so the democratization of private markets and because we think that this increasing alternative AUM will drive greater technology and data adoption in line more with the public markets. But look, maybe looking at the numbers and what our forecasts are showing, given the challenging macro backdrop that we are seeing right now, I mean, we are forecasting a softer fundraising environment and softer performance for alternative assets until 2027, which is as far as our forecasts go at this point in time, than we have seen over the last few years. So currently, fundraising is taking much longer than it used to. We are seeing the highest proportion of funds in market that have been in market for more than 36 months already. And it's especially tough out there for new and emerging managers, which again are seeing the toughest fundraising environment we have probably seen in a decade. But that all said, when we think about the outlook for the industry, we still forecast AUM in alternatives, so across private capital and hedge funds, to continue to grow at a very healthy 9% CAGR to reach more than $23 trillion by the end of 2027. So from the $15 trillion today, $23 trillion by 2027. And just looking at the private capital piece of that, we do expect that to grow actually at a low double-digit rate, probably. So look, while the era of, I guess, cheap borrowing and, and low rates seems over for now, we continue to be excited about the prospects of private markets. And most institutional investors that we talk to while they acknowledge that the macroeconomic environment is very tough, they are sticking with the long-term alternatives programs. And it's exactly for the reasons that you have already laid out. It's around high-risk adjusted returns. It's around diversification benefits. In this environment, also the inflation hatching characteristics of certain asset classes. And it's around reduced portfolio volatility almost. So there's a lot we think to be excited about when it comes to alternatives and thinking about the outlook. I just get back last night from New York, and I've been all over the world in the last couple of months from the Middle East to Europe. I just get back from Asia as well. And I think that there is a theme about 
the geopolitical backdrop and where we are in the market. And we're just done the maybe recognize the bull market here in the US. It's the most uncomfortable bull market I've ever experienced in my career. But it's interesting. There's the old saying about our industry is the only one where you mark down the merchandise and everybody runs out of the store. And it's interesting coming off this conference in New York, we had a lot of very sophisticated allocators up on the stage. And then I had the pleasure of doing a 30-minute keynote with John Gray, the president of Blackstone. And there was a consensus that this could be a pretty interesting vintage year because valuations are being marked down. And if I compare that to maybe the tail end of 2021, where leverage was being given away and the good times were rolling, I don't know how that's going to turn out necessarily. But this could be a good entry point on the one hand. But then on the other hand, especially with the institutions, they've got asset allocation buckets they're focused on. And this concept of the denominator effect, where they've got to maybe sell out of the private markets and top up their publics to some degree. Maybe this year has softened that blow a little bit. But what is your view on this current vintage year? And are trends like this denominator effect maybe clouding what could be a pretty good entry point for investors that are thinking about the private markets for the first time? It's a very interesting point. It's definitely top of mind with a lot of the investors we talk to as well across the globe. There seems to be a consensus forming that the vintages after significant dislocation or market effects like the one we are seeing right now tend to be quite good vintages. So I think there's an expectation and a hope that actually the 2023 vintage or 2024 vintage will be a very solid one. What is absolutely, you're rightly saying, constraining a bit of that enthusiasm is the denominator effect. So we have seen last year for the first two, three quarters, public markets selling off private markets, valuation marks not really being adjusted. That has switched a bit in Q4 of last year where the public markets bounced back and the private market valuation marks actually were down roughly 10%. And we have seen a similar trend in Q1. So arguably there's a convergence happening, which is lessening the denominator effect. But ultimately it has hit several investors that are very keen to get into the latest vintages and they need liquidity to do this. That all said, and while there are certain investors who are already over the allocation targets they have set. And for instance, public pension funds are quite exposed here. Endowments are the most over-allocated when it comes to private equity, for instance, right now. And the wealth manager is probably the least. We just ran a survey. So we run twice a year a very broad institution investor survey. And we gauge a bit the temperature. And we're asking them about their views around valuations, a liquidity denominator effect. And interestingly enough, what that seemed to indicate is that maybe some of these concerns will phase out, maybe in some pockets of it for certain investors that have actually been overplayed. Because the one question we asked specifically about that is, how much has the denominator effect influenced your private capital allocation decisions in the last year? And I have to say, very much to our surprise, about 40% responded no to that. And there were 10% who said, absolutely, it has significantly impacted my allocation decisions. But 40% did very clearly state it has not been a factor at all, actually. And from the same kind of survey we ran with the investors to try to get a better understanding how they think about allocation diversification as well, we also asked them around their intentions to adjust allocations based on their views on where we are in the market cycles. I can tell you there is not really great consensus where the equity market cycles are at right now or the macro cycles. I think everyone is going in with the assumption that, yes, there will be a recession, but how long or how deep it is is a bit unclear. But what was interesting, despite that uncertainty around where we are exactly in the cycle, is that actually 
close to 30% of institutional investors reported they intend to increase the amount of capital going into private markets. And again, there were just 6 to 7% who say they will reduce it. And the remainder was more thinking about how to adjust the portfolio from here. So shifting between asset classes. And that was really interesting to us because the denominator effect has absolutely come up in a lot of conversations, probably since Q3 of last year. But we have signs now that maybe it will be become less of a factor later this year. But the fact is, at this point in time, there's definitely a liquidity constraint when it comes to institutional investors. And they'll have to work through that to allocate to the vintage that they're hoping to be a good vintage. A few things there. We wrote a report called Portfolio for the Future Ourselves, maybe about a year or two ago. We previewed some of that in your office and elsewhere around the world. And Andrea Auerbach from Cambridge Associates did a piece on less liquid markets. And she made the observation that the very best time to enter the private markets, maybe specifically private equity, is probably 20, 25 years ago, when it truly was an asset class and alpha was there for the taking, but efficiency and it's become a crowded trade, et cetera, et cetera. But she still maintained the second best time is today. And I don't know if she meant literally today, you have to be a lot more careful coming in. But if I mean it around today, it's not only maybe this current vintage year, but the secondary market for the aforementioned reasons has gotten a lot more active too. So if I'm coming in for the first time, perhaps there's a lot more inventory to look at. The J curve is coming up the other side. I've got great transparency into the underlying portfolio companies. So what is your research showing on the growth of the secondaries, the activity in the secondaries, and how an allocator should be thinking about that as maybe either a good entry point or a way of maybe increasing your exposure in the private markets. I think the secondary market is very interesting right now. And I absolutely agree with your point that there's a lot more inventory right now out there. And the good thing is, is with that, there is also more data than there has ever been to make sense of that inventory. But it's a lot to make sense of across the different strategies and sub-strategies. Secondary specifically is receiving a lot of attention right now. And it comes up in a lot of conversations we are having. Our data specifically showing that right now, when it comes to, for instance, the global private equity secondary market, the AUM there is roughly equivalent of 6% of the global private equity market as of the end of last year, and it has been growing a bit. And we are seeing success of secondary funds in market. And really, what we think that stems from is there's just generally very weak exit environment right now. And that is prompting a lot of that demand for secondaries. And those are GP and LP-led, and especially as the LPs are in need of a greater liquidity that I mentioned. So I think what is constraining that a bit at this point is that there is still that valuation disconnect that we are seeing, and that really is holding back some of those transactions. But we think they are about to happen. The interest is there. There is a need for liquidity. And there are a lot of players entering the market, looking at the inventory and considering if secondaries is a good way to enter effectively. And as we face, maybe it's a season or maybe it is broader than that, there's always going to be investors allocating in, allocating out. And I think that the challenges of last year maybe have exacerbated that. But another concept that's you know, what's in your business and model and mine, Christoph, is transparency. We're both in the transparency business. And I think the more 
were prepared to recognize that the GP, according to Jack Bogle many, many years ago, and I agree with it, is that the GP is serving two masters full stop. They've got shareholders and partners on the one hand that they have a responsibility to, and then a client on the other where they're a fiduciary. And we're never going to solve for that. But I think if we're exceedingly transparent, all the better. And with that as a backdrop, GP-led continuation funds have been in the news of late. And there's been mostly the LP side, which is important because it's their asset they're the client. I think the LPs, for the most part, and maybe the majority, are not that crazy about them. And I think most notably, the time frame in which they have to make a decision is so narrow that their hand is forced to a large degree. And I think the GP side, fairly, is that, hey, we're a fiduciary. And we're going to recognize fair value at the very best opportunity. And because of the macro environment we're in. This is not a good time to sell. We think that we've got a lot more running room, et cetera. So I get that too. But where are we in transparency? Because it seems like we've got two sides maybe talking over each other versus trying to reach some consensus that, okay, let's get on the same page or try to get on the same page. So maybe using continuation funds as an example, leading into your views on transparency and how we can improve upon that. And most of it's around data. I think generally we are seeing a trend towards more transparency. And I think what is interesting in that dynamic is given the difficulty of the fundraising environment right now and some of the constraints on the liquidity provider side, there's definitely helped the power balance seems definitely be shifting a bit back to the limited partners for the first time in a while. And they are arguing for more transparency and talking about continuation funds, particularly around that. And Ilba is currently doing work with the SEC and looking into that a bit as well. And you mentioned the point. They are sometimes not too excited about it, having very short windows to make decisions. So it's definitely a topic for discussion for the limited partners wanting more transparency around it and wanting more of an opportunity to engage with the GPs around it to understand why assets would shift from the main fund potentially into a continuation vehicle. I think what we have seen is and what is exciting about that concept as well that a lot of fund managers have in the past been very successful understanding when is the right time to realize value, right? And that plays into their fiduciary duty and generating the best returns. And that's why they have locked up capital because they have proven over and over again that they know when it's time to realize. And I think what the LPs in the market are seeing is that these vehicles do allow them to stay, to continue to be involved with certain assets where the time might not be right yet to realize. And it's worth having that conversation. But I think that conversation which needs to happen in the first place. And I think that is what the LPs are basically asking for. And I think when we think about the attraction of continuation vehicles and why we are seeing it more now, I think given that we have general concerns over the deteriorating exit environments, more focus is naturally being placed on right realizations multiples, DPI analysis, compared to any other measures of unrealized returns. And as the GPs are under more pressure to deliver healthy distributions to the limited partners and going back to the previous question, so they can potentially allocate to the current vintages, the GPs are definitely finding these continuation vehicles as an attractive option to generate those distributions. So we think we're going to see more of that, but you need to bring the LPs along on the journey and have a healthy conversation around it and show them the value of having a longer period to realize the value in some of these assets. And maybe taking this part of the conversation, Christoph, and moving it maybe a little bit toward democratization, liquidity seems to be at the center of this. And for the continuation funds, you can't have it at all. 
versus in the democratized world, you can have it whenever you want. And we've seen some very sophisticated strategies put into a USIT or 40-act vehicle. We saw some of the challenges with Blackstone and B-REIT, where even in an interval fund, it can bust up the value proposition pretty quickly as well. And I think with liquidity, it's more of art than it is science. It's more of a feature than it is a benefit. And it's always hard to strike that right balance. But I think if we provide too much of it, I think we have a tendency to play into the worst instincts of investors, which is to run out of the store when the merchandise is on sale as opposed to doubling down. So how important is long-term, how important is managing liquidity successfully around maybe a total portfolio approach as opposed to I'm going to tack in and out and try to do better than the market as a whole. I think what the private capital industry has shown over the decades and why it's been so successful is that they do strike the balance most of the time right between holding assets for the long term and realizing the value and funding that innovation that private capital has been funding. And that does just take time. Right? A lot of the value creation happens in the private markets oftentimes, and that requires multiple years, while still making sure that the liquidity profiles are healthy. I think we are currently in a very extraordinary period where there's still a lot of dry powder, where realizations have come down a lot because the ex-environment is closed, and where suddenly, because of the nominal effect, liquidity has dried up. It's a very difficult position to be in, but ultimately, the fund managers have shown over many years and the investors that have played in that particular market, that they understand the trade-off between realizing value at the right time and having the right liquidity. I think to your point on the democratization of the industry and having that additional liquidity, that's a very interesting point. That's definitely something the fund managers that we speak with are very interested in because it's absolutely right now they have some constraints on the institutional side and the non-institutional side is suddenly opening up a bit more than it has ever helped by education and a bit of regulation and technology solutions. And that is opening up a different liquidity profile. But I think it's important to note that this democratization of alternatives or of the private markets definitely doesn't come without its, its obstacles and challenges. And yes, it is a huge opportunity. And you'll see that various estimates out there around how big the private wealth channel is. By any estimate, it's huge. It's a multi-trillion dollar opportunity. We believe less than 5% are allocated to alternative estimates today. So as those high net worth individual investors are increasingly moving beyond the traditional 60 portfolio, there is a lot of room to grow for them in alternatives. But it's an incredibly fragmented channel. So while the liquidity is available and is there theoretically, it is not one that is easy to access. It takes a lot of efforts on the ground. And in all of this, what is so critical and what is one of the main obstacles to overcome and that's where Kaya, where Prequin can help out, is ultimately education, really helping those new capital providers understand what alternative assets have to offer, the nuances and the complexities that these asset classes come with. For instance, the liquidity profiles, which are very different to the public markets and the return expectations. And then the next challenges are education, as I mentioned, it's regulation, which is fairly constructive at this point, actually, globally, and then technology, ultimately. And all of this is underpinned and is definitely driving, again, that clear demand for more transparency from the wealth management channel, as we are seeing it from the institutional side, for ultimately better availability of trustworthy data. I don't know if Gary Gensler is a listener here, Christophe, but I think regulation in the U.S. has probably gone a little bit past a constructive level. And more regulation, especially in this phase, is very good. But regulation has got to involve 
educating the end investor, not necessarily protecting them by a higher list of regulations to follow, but maybe that's for another podcast. So as I bring this to uh, a conclusion, and I really like this discussion a lot and appreciate you taking the time, you and I are out on the circuit a lot. We're running uh, big global organizations, both about the same age. We're 21 years ourselves this year. You folks have a much broader reach than us. But I try to remain as focused as I possibly can, because if I keep running from this to that to the other thing, then I'm not leaving a mark in the door. And if I think about one thing every single day, and you just said it a moment ago, how can I bring better outcomes for the end investor, full stop. So you're out there quite a bit too, a lot of research. What is sort of on the top of your playlist in terms of things you're thinking about, research you're focusing on? And this doesn't have to be over the next three to five years, more things kind of right in front of you, the here and now that are really consuming your time and efforts. When we look at the alternative assets industry, and I like the point you make around focus because we have from the start been focused on initially frequent private equity intelligence, just private equity. And then we added all the other asset classes. We are firmly focused on alternative assets. And within that, where we are spending right now a lot of time is we have a huge amount of data on alternative assets and starting with the allocators on who they are and the mandates they have to allocate to the funds and market and then the fund managers and then the asset level. What we are very focused on right now is connecting those dots and really making sure that we look holistically across the data that we have and that we provide those insights back to the industry. So we would have seen the number of publications we have out there in the market has increased significantly over the last two years. We have a frequent academy now to educate the market more around alternatives. And we are staying close to the market to really understand what are the topics that the market and the industry cares about. And then we want to use our data to dive deeper and help the market make more sense of these quite complex asset classes and strategies within that. So right now we're spending a lot of time around valuation. This is a key topic for us and for a lot of our users in the broader industry and liquidity probably. And that is then linked to portfolio allocation. So those are the three topics that we care significantly about right now. In addition to the point you made earlier, the democratization question, the private wealth questions, how will that impact alternatives in the next decade? And that is more like a longer term question. So valuation and liquidity are very much a now question. The private wealth channel opening up is very much medium term question we're trying to get to the bottom of. Christoph, you mentioned connecting the dots. Please do that with indelible ink as opposed to a soft lead pencil, which I know you've been doing for the last two decades, something we do ourselves and most importantly, do in partnership with you. So I'll finish where I began, which is tremendous thanks for all that you do and look forward to working with you and your team even more so into what is going to be a bright but sort of complicated future. And you and I are in the business of explaining the unexplainable, which is a hard mission, but thank you. It's a hard mission. Well, thank you very much, Bill, for having me and for the great partnership. All the best. Hope to see you soon. Thanks, Christoph. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Educational Alpha. I'm your host, Bill Kelly. Learn more about the Kaya Association and subscribe to the show at kaya.org. That's C-A-I-A.org. See you next time. 